Glad to see everyone here, and we are especially glad to have our visitors with us. We have families uh, with us with uh, children. We're always looking to increase the number of young families, and we're glad you're part of that program now where we lock the doors and don't let you leave until <laughs> you agree to move here and place membership with us. So we have the Waters uh, here, here, Leslie and her children. They've been at the marriage retreat. They're on their way to Horizons. Then... Uh, uh, Jeremy and uh, Amanda uh, Creason here with us, and uh, they've been to the marriage retreat, and uh, they're just uh, trying to get home, I think, but uh, <laughs> they'll, we'll let you do that in pack, okay? <laughs> no, we, uh, we are glad to have these visiting families with us, glad to have everyone uh, with us today, and we are uh, truly trusting God to continue to bless the White Oak Church, uh, not only with young families, but with our older members as well, who are such a good example and provide a good example to our younger families. And we do pray that God will continue to bless us, and we know that he will if we do our part. We have confidence and trust that he, he will. You know, the Bible is a remarkable book for obviously many, many reasons. It's unity, 40 writers uh, over a period of 1,600 years, writers from different backgrounds, educationally, socially, so forth, and yet all of that unity there, the factualness of it, it never fails to be right. It is truly the will of God to man. But you know, one of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that it addresses itself to all men. I think that's one of the proofs that we could cite that it is inspired because um, if man had written it unaided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chances are he would have written it to the, to the aristocracy of the day in order to try to preserve its, uh, its existence, to guarantee its preservation. But God in his word speaks of all classes both favorably and unfavorably. Acts 10, 34 and 35 remind us that as Peter said at the household of Cornelius, Truly I perceive, as the New King James renders it, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Anyone, anyone, doesn't matter about your educational background, how rich you are, how poor you are, or how much you have achieved in terms of the accolades that are given out by this world. And yet, you know, we do live in an age of competition where... Uh, there are those who are concerned about the biggest, about the greatest, about the largest, etc. And at times that can affect uh, the church. And sometimes people can uh, lose sight of, of uh, the spiritual growth of the church and just uh, strive for uh, numbers indiscriminately. And yet we should not do that. We should make sure that indeed our growth is as God would have it to be. And so it can affect uh, the church at times, the age of, of competition. But if that's what's important to us, it hurts to be less than someone else if those are our priorities. But we don't look at things that way as members of the body of Christ. And God's book, the Bible, does not place favorable emphasis on the rich. It does not face uh, place favorable in emphasis on the famous, etc., or upon any great talent, or upon any great 
ability that is in and of itself. In fact, the ordinary plays an important part in God's scheme. Think with me about Amos the prophet. Remember him? In Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, Amos said, I was no prophet nor a son of a prophet. I was a, a sheep herder and a dresser of sycamore trees, and yet God called me to prophesy. He is often called the country preacher. But what a great and courageous work he did. Think about John the baptizer who wore, wore a, a girdle of camels, a leathern girdle, and wore camel's hair and ate locust and wild honey. And think of the tremendous work he did in preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what about the Lord himself? He was a common man, the son of a carpenter, less than many of his day as one would look at material things. Then we come to the apostles that, whom Jesus chose to do that important work that he had called them to do. What about them? They were ignorant and unlearned men by the assessment of those of their day. And yet look at what, what was accomplished through them. Reminds us of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.26 when he said, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many who are, who are mighty, not many who are, are noble, he said in that passage, are called. In other words, it's not that they're not called to obey the gospel. All men are subject to the gospel, but what Paul means is that not many of that nature answer the call because other things distract them. And so not many who are wise according to the flesh, think of academia in the academic world today. How many among academia are, are interested in the pure, unadulterated gospel of Christ. So Paul was exactly right when he wrote those words by inspiration. Not many who are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And a little bit later on in that same epistle at chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then we come to Acts chapter 9, a passage and a person at which we look today in this lesson that I think is one of the greatest accounts of an individual that one could find anywhere in the New Testament. And this is the only place and the only time you're ever going to read about him. And yet he was a man who baptized the man who wrote most of the New Testament. The man's name, Ananias. Verse 10 of Acts 9 simply refers to him as a certain disciple. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus, Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. As we read on, so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is 
praying. This is, of course, after the Lord had appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road and told him to go into the city and wait there. And then the text continues, and in a vision, the Lord says, He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to hear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and having his hand, laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. A certain disciple. That's what I'd like for us to think about for a few minutes this morning. Not an apostle. Not a certain apostle. Not a certain elder in the Lord's church at Damascus. No, there's no indication this man was an elder in the church. He was just a certain disciple. And we'll never hear from him again after we look at him in this text. And yet, as we said, he baptized the man who wrote most of the New Testament. He was ordinary, if there is such a thing, when it comes to disciples. An ordinary disciple, and yet God could use him. Now, isn't it the case that all Christians claim discipleship? They're equivalent, aren't they? We, we claim discipleship if we are Christians. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we the kind of disciples that Ananias was? He was a regular member of the Lord's church, as one might say. But what kind of disciple was he? Well, first of all, he was righteous. He was righteous. If you look over at Acts chapter 22, where Paul recounts his conversion there, in Acts 22 and verse 12, here's how he refers to this man. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, goes on, came to me, and so on. And so he was a devout man. This man was righteous. He was a man whose life was lived upon the high plane of respect for God, upon the high plane of respect for others and respect for himself. And he reminds us that it's not enough to profess Christianity, but we must live it also. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said, Matthew five thirteen, beginning. You are the light of the world, he goes on. And so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's a passage in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul wrote to Titus concerning those who were servants and were to be obedient to their masters and so forth, verse 9. goes on, verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. And then he adds this, 
that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Think about adorning the doctrine of God. That's a clothing analogy. It's the idea of dress. A dress, if you will, a spiritual dress that causes one to be attractive. It's the kind of dress that causes attraction. In other words, adorning what kind of dress? Doctrinal dress. He's talking about adorning yourself with the doctrine or the teaching of Christ. And so it tells us that we must do more than teach that doctrine. We must wear it, in other words. It it must be a part of our lives. Teaching, in other words, must be accompanied by attractive lives. Lives that will cause others to see our good works, going back to Matthew 5, and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live, there it is, live, not just teach, but live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. Being godlike, being sober, being righteous. And that's what living for Christ means. It means righteousness, as Ananias was obviously a righteous man. It means being righteous at home. It means being righteous at work. It means being righteous at school. It means being righteous in our recreation. It means being righteous in our dress. It means being righteous when we're alone. It means being righteous when we're obviously with others. It means being righteous in our attitudes as well as in our actions toward others. Yes, Christianity is more than filling a pew, isn't it? It's important to fill a pew. But Christianity, as Ananias reminds us, is far more. It's a righteousness that you don't turn on and off, but one that you turn on and leave on and actually grow in every day that you live. Ananias, first of all, was a righteous man. This certain disciple was righteous. And so must we be. And it's the sure way to impress people with the gospel, isn't it? Is by living it. That's how we can impress people with the gospel. And it's the only way for us to get to heaven. But you know, the sure way to drive people away is living wrong. And wrong living makes us of no value to God. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? But to let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me is to let the doctrine of Christ be seen in me. That's what Ananias was, one in whom the Christ could be seen. He was righteous. But the second thing about this certain disciple was he was ready. He was ready. The Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And right before that, when he called Ananias, the Lord did, Ananias said what? Here I am, Lord. Reminds us of what Isaiah on one occasion said when he received that call from God, Here am I, send me. Now, there was a little bit of reluctance that he had based upon having heard some things about Saul that made him cautious. And he expressed that 
caution about going to Saul and identifying himself as a disciple of the Lord because here Saul who'd been breathing out threatenings and slaughter and was actually on the way to Damascus on a mission of persecution and now the Lord is saying to this disciple, you go in and face this man face to face. This man who's been, who's been a party to killing Christians and is on his way to get more and bring them bound to Jerusalem, you go on in and talk to him. And so he did have some caution, but when the Lord said, you go, he went. He was ready to be used. He was at God's disposal. He was available, reminding us that we must be as well. We can't claim discipleship and be unavailable because disciples are those who are available to visit the sick. Disciples are those who are available to help the downtrodden, to support the weak, to comfort those who've suffered the loss of loved ones, to restore the, the wayward, Galatians 6 and verse 1, to encourage the discouraged, to seek the lost. You know, there are other things that are right and, and good, but these things must be done. We've got to make ourselves available to be tools in the Lord's hands. And that's what this certain disciple reminds us of. Just a disciple. But a disciple who was ready. And you know, this type of availability is not about big buildings where we say, come and we'll teach you. That's not what it's about. It's not about paying someone else to to do it for me. It's not about doing these things only when it's convenient for me to do it. It may not have been convenient for Ananias to do what the Lord told him to do here, but he did it. The real disciple is available to obey when it's inconvenient, when it's unpopular, when it is unpleasant, when it might mean incurring the wrath of others. We still have to be ready. And so this certain disciple, Ananias, was not only righteous, but he was ready. But he was also reasonable. He was a man who had a reasonable attitude. You go over to verse 17, which we read earlier. After the Lord had reassured him of his mission, and calmed his concerns, Ananias, verse 17, went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Lord has sent me. So he was reasonable. He could listen to what the Lord said once he raised his concerns. And when the Lord reassured him, he went his way. You know, it reminds us of what Paul, after he became the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, wrote to the Roman church and said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That is, it's service that can be reasoned out. Because you can know what God says, and even though you may have some reluctance or maybe have some question or some caution, 
how do you relieve that reluctance? How do you eliminate the caution? You go to the Lord. Ananias, once he was reassured by the Lord, went his way. We can be reassured by the Lord and go our way. How? Not by the Lord speaking to us on the Damascus Road or any other street or road, but by this book. Here's where all of our reluctance, all of our doubts, all of our fears can be allayed if we'll simply go to the Lord. Go to the Lord through the book and go to the God of heaven in prayer through our mediator and high priest Jesus Christ. And then go our way as Ananias did. Come let us reason together, says the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1 as God called upon his people to simply reason with him. And if they would objectively, they could understand his will and be properly motivated to obey it. Motivated by love for the one who gave us that will. But there's a final point about this certain disciple who was not only righteous and ready and reasonable, but very importantly, he was respectful. He was respectful. Go back to verse 17 again, the verse we just read. Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, I know you. You have killed my fellow Christians. And I'm here to tell you what the Lord wanted me to tell you, but I am not happy about it. Does that remind you of anybody in the Old Testament? How about Jonah? How about a contrast between Jonah who ran away from God initially and had to have his attention gained by being swallowed by a giant fish, which would generally do that for an individual. (laughs) But Ananias, though he did have some questions, he was reasonable, and he went, and when he got there, he didn't resent having been sent. He didn't resent what Saul of Tarsus had done. He trusted the Lord enough and understood his mission and believed the Lord sufficiently to go to this man and to speak respectfully to him. And so he said to him, Brother Saul. Now he was not calling him a brother in Christ at that point because he was not a brother in Christ. And we've talked about this before in other connections, but he was using the term as a fellow Jew. And we see that used, and we'll just briefly look at it again just to remind ourselves, if we need to be reminded, that that was a term that was used by Paul himself later in the Roman letter, for example. Romans 9, verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. There's a wonderful explanation of what Brother Saul meant. Brother Saul meant... Brother, countryman, fellow Israelite, that's how he used it. Not as a fellow Christian. The same way Paul used it there. And so, it does reveal, though, a respect. He could have spoken unkindly to Paul when he saw him. Because Paul himself would later write in 1 Timothy 1 and and verse 13 that he was, among other things, a blasphemer, insolent man, 
Two verses later at verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1, he said, I am chief of sinners. Chief of sinners. Ananias knew that. And yet it did not affect his attitude because he believed what the Lord had said and he did not rebuke Paul for his wrong. He did not refuse to go. And the Lord wouldn't have forced him because the Lord doesn't force us. But instead, he said, Brother Saul, my fellow Jew in the flesh, by flesh a brother, and he showed kindness and courtesy. And oh, how important that is for us to recognize that attitude determines whether or not God can use us and will use us. We can't reach people if our attitude is wrong. can't reach the lost. We can't reach the wayward. We can't reach the community. We can't build up the church if our attitude is wrong. The attitude of Ananias, that'd be a good phrase, wouldn't it? The attitude of Ananias, what is it? To lift up and to heal. To lift up and to heal. What Paul had done was in the past. Everything was about to change for Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias was the vessel the instrument through which the Lord would bring about that change as he baptized him into Christ. Ananias' anger, his frustration with Saul would only have hurt. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being driven away and never obeying the gospel because of Ananias' attitude, if it had been the wrong attitude? You realize what would have been lost if the Apostle Paul had been driven away from the truth. And so he manifests the attitude of Christ. Matthew 5, 44 through 48, that context, love your enemies. Romans 12, 14, bless those. In fact, look at that text there in, in Romans 12. There are a few critical verses in that same Immediate context, Romans 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Then verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Then over at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, anyone can tear down. Doesn't take much talent to do that. But this man... This man, Ananias, baptized the Apostle Paul. He lifted up and healed. And that must be our attitude, to lift up and to heal. As we said, no talent needed to tear down. And so a good question that we should always ask ourselves in various situations is this. Will this help or hurt? Will my words that I'm about to speak, although they may be true, will they help or hurt? Will the stories that I'm about to Relate, though they may be true, help or hurt. The things that I'm about to write down, will they help or will they hurt? And you know something, the real test of discipleship often comes, often comes when we have been hurt, especially by someone near to us. How do we react? And so a forgiving spirit is emphasized throughout Scripture. Lift up and heal. Lift up and heal. Everywhere, everywhere. 
We can be lost with the wrong attitude, but with the right attitude, we can be useful to God and one day go home to heaven. That's what Ananias, not an elder as far as we know, certainly not an apostle, just a certain disciple. That's what he teaches us. Righteous, ready, reasonable, and respectful. And we never meet him again after this account. You know, it's not our lot to become rich or famous or etc., but it is our duty to be a tool in God's hands. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is man's all, as the New King James renders it. God, the next verse says, is going to bring every work into judgment with every hidden thing. Everything. And so if we're not servants, if we're not disciples, we need to be, must be, if indeed we are to have any hope of heaven one day. But not just disciples, but certain disciples like Ananias. Not necessarily elder, not an apostle, don't even have apostles today, don't need them. We have apostles today, they're right here ruling right here through the Word. But just disciples. But disciples that are righteous and ready, reasonable, and respectful. If you're not a disciple, we plead with you to become one in the only way you can this morning by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. And then rise ready. Righteous? Yes. Cleansed by the blood. Ready? Yes. Ready to go now because I'm one of Christ's followers. And always be reasonable as you continue to reason with God through His Word all of your life as you are respectful. Being ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. Respect. Respect. What a life. No other life like it. It can be yours this morning if it's not already. And if it has been your life, but as a wayward child, you know that you've wandered from it. You're no longer that certain disciple that you once were. You can be again by coming home to your first love and repentance, confession of any sin that needs to be confessed in a public way. And for all those who need no response because you are already among those certain disciples, may God continue to bless you to always be that the church at White Oak, through your influence and through your righteousness and your readiness and through those other wonderful qualities, your reasonableness as you study the Word and your respectfulness to all may understand, may appreciate the need for those qualities in contributing to the growth of the Lord's church here. As we stand to sing, if you need to respond, please come.